BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In September 1870, the Prussian army besieged Paris. The French government surrendered in March and Parisians declared their own government, the Commune, only for the French army to take over the siege and at the end of May kill the communards in their thousands. It was a bloody, traumatic nine months for the French capital and for France. Karl Marx praised the communards as the first proletarian revolutionaries, a sign of what might be. Others saw them as a warning of what must never be. Meanwhile, buoyed by victory, Bismarck declared German unification at Versailles and annexed Alsace-Lorraine for the new German Empire, prompting French longing for revenge, unsatisfied until 1918. With me to discuss the siege of Paris are Karine Varley, lecturer in French and European history at the University of Strathclyde, Julia Nichols, lecturer in French and European studies at King's College London, and Robert Gilday, Professor of Modern History at the University of Oxford. Robert Gilday, why were Prussians and other German forces fighting for France in 1870? Well, the Franco-Prussian War was a struggle for mastery in Europe between France and Prussia. France was under the Second Empire of Napoleon III, who was the nephew of the great Napoleon, and He was trying to reassert the hegemony that his uncle had had over Europe in that period, because since 1815, France had been a bit in the doldrums. Prussia was under King William, but above all, the Chancellor Bismarck was the mover and shaker. And Bismarck was trying to make Germany into a kind of divided country, divided into many states, and known for its culture, the the country of Beethoven and Wagner. He was trying to make it into a country of of blood and iron under Prussian dominance and mighty military and economic power. He was very well prepared for war. He had reformed the army. He had just fought two wars against Denmark and against Austria in pursuit of German unification. And he needed one more war against the French to unite Germany and basically to bring in South Germany into a new united Germany. He needed to drive up German nationalism in order to do that. Napoleon III was probably overconfident. He thought that the French army was very strong. He thought that French history was behind him. He was slightly tricked into war. When the French declared war on Prussia on the 15th of July 1870, uh, his first minister said that they were going to go to war with a light heart, and the French armies moved into the Tsarland. Uh, they, They advanced, but then within a matter of days, they were being driven back. And Napoleon III was taken prisoner at Sedan and he had to surrender to the Prussians. He finished up being in exile in England and dying curiously in Chislehurst in 1873. Meanwhile, one of the great French armies was under siege in Metz in eastern France and the a war that had started off with the people putting money on Napoleon III in France finished up as a uh, in, the, in the early phase as a, as a Prussian victory. You've mentioned blood and iron, and you've mentioned the organisation of Bismarck and the power of the Prussians. Why did nobody recognise that they were so powerful? Why did Napoleon sail out with a light heart and all that stuff? Did nobody know they were going to be hammered? Well, I think there was a fe- there was a feeling in in Europe, for example, the British. They thought that the main th- the main problem was France. That you know, a Napoleon was a Napoleon, and just as the f- the first Napoleon had had raged across Europe. In the early in the early years of the nineteenth century, so his nephew was going to do the same, and he had. It, it's, it's true that Napoleon III had been involved in the Crimean War. He'd sponsored the reunification of Italy. Uh, people just thought that France was going to be the power, uh, whereas Bismarck had been playing a very long game, uh, putting Germany back together again and making it, transforming it. Uh, from this um, divided country into 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 united power, but but the force of that the force of that unification had not yet been seen, and nobody had quite recognised this. Obviously, I think that's true. Yes, were they better armed, the Germans? They were better armed. They, I mean, they had considerable artillery. I mean, the French had a wonderful right, new rifle called the Chassepot, but the but the, the the Prussians had 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 an artillery made by Krupp of of, of Essen, uh, and they also had. And they brought in universal military service. So all Germans were conscripted and then put in reserve. So that meant that uh, the, the, the Prussians could draw on, on, on these great reserves of, of men to fight the war. 
Thank you very much, Karin Valley. So the Prussians won. The uh, Napoleon was captured. Uh, Parisians were captured. The uh, Parisian uh, French army was captured in their thousands, and the Prussians moved towards Paris. They thought they'd take it in three days. Who was defending Paris at the time? Well, at the time that the siege started, I mean, Paris was one of the most heavily fortified fortresses, um, cities that Europe had ever seen. It was a city that had previously not been particularly well fortified. Certainly that was something that Napoleon Bonaparte had regretted when it came to, um, you know, in the Napoleonic Wars. But they, the French government had spent huge amounts of money, about 120 million francs on the defences of Paris. So by the time the siege started, there were extremely well fortified... um, uh, The city was extremely well fortified. There were um, uh, walls of about 10 metres high surrounding the city. There were moats. There were uh, also... um, thousands of heavy guns, there were 400,000 men, some regular soldiers, but also a significant number of National Guardsmen who had um, who had responded to the call-up from the government. So the city was well prepared for uh, a siege, although nobody really expected a siege to happen. It was one of these things where some historians have compared it almost to a, being a bit like how, uh, you know, in the 20th century powers regarded nuclear weapons and, and still do to an extent as a, as a deterrence, that, you know, Paris was so well defended and this was going to be a deterrent against the Germans ever, you know, um, laying siege to it. But, of course, that wasn't to be the case. It's curious we have two cases of overconfidence. Napoleon sailed out thinking he was going to walk it, and Bismarck then turned to Paris and gave it three or four days. It lasted for five months. Yeah. I mean, Bismarck in particular, uh, and uh, and others, um, particularly in the, the German army, the Prussian army, thought that especially once the city was sealed off from the 20th of September 1870 and once uh, completely cut off from the outside world and from the rest of so France. So the Prussians just encircled it? Yeah. Just, um, they encircled it? So, yeah. The, I mean, the city, there was the fortifications were around 38 um, miles in perimeter, which meant that the Prussians had to cover a 50-mile perimeter. Um, but there were far fewer Prussians than there were in uh, French uh, soldiers defending Paris. But yes, the city was completely sealed off. It was extremely difficult to get in or out and food couldn't get in or out. And and Bismarck and many of the Germans thought that the French, you know, particularly because of the the regime of Napoleon III had this reputation for decadence and so on. And they thought that the French just wouldn't be able to last without food once the, you know, once the privation started to kick in, that they would just surrender but that wasn't the case but what were the priva- what were the privations like and how did it last out for nine months well it, it was extremely difficult um, especially in terms of food um, the city had enough food at the start of the siege that they calculated to last about 80 days and they had enough fuel to last about the same amount but they soon realized that it wasn't going to be quite so simple. I mean, they had, for instance, they had thousands of sheep and cows, but they didn't think about, for instance, providing cows for milk, so the children suffered. Um, and they they introduced um, rationing for meat in about October 1870, but bread rationing didn't come in until much later. But fairly quickly, things began to be really extremely difficult for Parisians. Um, and there are lots of stories about how the Parisians had to start once they ran out of the more conventional food, the the, the food that had been stored, the um, you know the meats that had been stored. They then had to turn to killing domestic animals. They also um, killed and ate about sixty five thousand horses as well. There are stories of people eating rats, although estimates are that they only ate about 300 rats, but things became extremely difficult for Parisians and that's ultimately why the siege ended in January 1871, because of the lack of food. But then they gave in. Can you take the story on from there, Julia Nichols? First of all, but what was uniting the Parisians? Why did they... Why did they feel so confident and how did they keep together for so long? Because uh, Bismarck was not only surrounded, he started bombarding it with his cannons and mm-hmm. uh, so on. In September 1870, there is um, 
unusually in French history, I think, an almost kind of bloodless revolution, uh, which brings to an end the Second Empire, the rule of Napoleon, and brings in the Third Republic. And after that happens, there is a kind of huge wave of patriotism that sweeps across Paris and is quite a unifying force. So people call back to revolutionary history, um, particularly to the Battle of Valmy, which happened in 1792. Was there a sense in which the Parisians thought that the French army had let them down and they were going to show what they were made of? Yes, I definitely think that there is a sense of that. There is, uh, throughout the siege, the National Guard, um, which is the traditional defence of Paris, I suppose, a sort of citizen militia, increasingly arms itself or demands to be armed more. And a lot of battalions of the National Guard are quite radical. They want to take a different tack in the war than they think that the the new government, the new Republican government is taking. Uh, They want to really kind of bring it to the Prussians. They think, yes, that the French army is sort of letting them down and the government is letting them down and really extending these conditions that uh, so intolerable for so many people in Paris. Where is the government of, pa- of France at the time? Are they in Paris or have they pushed off? No, the government is not in Paris at the time. So uh, Where are they? the government relocates to Tours. Um, Léon Gambetta, who is the, the Minister for War and the Minister for the Interior, famously leaves Paris in a balloon. Um, at the beginning of October 1870 to go and try to rally more troops. Um, So Paris is sort of deserted by the national government during the siege. Um, And this causes a lot of resentment among the population. There is a sense that it's almost a stateless city. There is no government during that period and that they have to step in and run that government for themselves and for the other citizens of Paris. And is this where you could say that they, they become, the Prussians are becoming radicalised? Yes, I think so. I think that that's, that's a big factor in it. So this creates a sense of resentment against the national government, but it also um, boosts the power of local government in Paris. So I'm thinking about uh, the kind of government of the specific arrondissement. So a lot of things during the siege, a lot of administration is carried out by this local government. Um, it, the National Guard is administered and kind of drafted locally. Um, food rations is also dispersed locally. Um, and local uh, associations create vigilant vigilance committees to kind of watch out for anything weird that might be happening or any Prussians that might be trying to get into Paris. And a lot of these local governments are quite radical. So the national government leaving Paris almost delivers uh, power into the hands of more radical citizens. Robert, <coughs> Robert Gilday, Bismarck started to shell Paris in January uh, uh, heavily um, he was obviously impatient. Why and what did he expect to happen and what did happen? Well, obviously Bismarck wanted to bring the, the war to an end and uh, he did have this, this powerful artillery and they start, as you say, to shell Paris um, in January. Uh, there were about two or 300 shells a day fired from a distance of about five miles. They didn't actually do that much uh, damage. They hit a few. They hit hospitals. It's true. Uh, they killed about a uh, hundred people and uh, uh, injured about three hundred. And about twenty thousand people were driven from their homes. But actually, more people died from diseases such as pneumonia in the, in the cold winter of seventy seventy one. I mean, about a uh, thousand people a week were dying of pneumonia. So. Uh, he didn't actually get what he wanted. Um, the uh, and, and one could argue that uh, that the, the resolve of the prisons was probably um, increased by 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 the bombardment because of because of the patriotism that has that has been talked about. How did he get what he wanted then? Well, he got what he wanted by uh, negotiating with the government of national defence for um, which was outside Paris. Well, it was outside Paris, but I think there, there were also bits of it that were still in Paris, uh, in, the, in, in the Hôtel de Ville, the City Hall. 
Uh, but he, he is negotiating particularly with the foreign minister of um, the government of national defence, a man called Jules Favre, who had famously said that France would not uh, surrender uh, an inch of its territory or a stone of its fortresses. Uh, but he was meeting, uh, from quite an early stage, he was meeting... Um, Bismarck in the Chateau of Ferrières, which was a neo-Renaissance chateau outside Paris, owned by the Baron de Rothschild. Uh, another person we should mention, Adolphe Thiers, who, um, uh, who was a veteran uh, French politician, aged 73, um, uh, he, who was described by Marx as a monstrous gnome. Uh, he had been going to London, uh, Vienna, um, uh, and uh, St Petersburg to try to get allies, but they but they failed. So basically, uh, the, the 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 government of national defence was trying to establish an armistice, and and uh, because it wanted the war to end, some people wanted the war to end. Gombeter wanted it to, it, it to continue, but he he wasn't doing too well. But there were other people on the government of national defence who wanted to end the war, to to restore order, and therefore uh, to do a deal with Bismarck. So thank you. Karine Valley, in, in Versailles in January there was a German unification and in February a German victory parade through Paris. How did the French react to that? Well, the the German unification um, that was proclaimed on the 18th of January, I mean, that was something that was deliberately designed by the Germans to... Um, provoke and to increase a sense of German nationalism but it was also hugely provocative for the French. I mean the location was deliberately chosen in the Palace of Versailles as a sort of symbolic gesture. It was meant, the Germans saw it as a kind of uh, gesture of revenge against not actually Napoleon III but going back to Louis XIV for the insults that they felt that they had um, suffered as a consequence of his actions. Um, the German people. Um, so that was hugely provocative. But um, when the Parisian people found out the the um, firstly the, that the French government had surrendered, but and secondly the terms of the surrender and the initial peace terms that the Germans had um, imposed on the French, Which there were? was well the key sticking point was well a number of things. Firstly, the annexation of Alsace-Lorraine. But that was something that pretty much everybody expected. But secondly, it was the indemnities, the costs that the Germans had imposed on and were imposing on the French um, that they were going to have to pay to Germany. This was five billion, five billion francs. Originally, the Germans had asked for six billion, and it was widely felt that this was such a huge, and unprecedented sum that this was going to bankrupt France. But there were also other conditions. Um, one of them was that because the fortress of Belfort, which is part of Alsace, had not been defeated by German forces, that it would remain French and not be annexed by the Germans. And as a consequence of that, one of the, the deals was that that would remain French, but that the Germans would get to parade through Paris um, and through um, march down the Champs-Élysées. And many people in Paris thought that that was the ultimate insult because they thought that Paris hadn't been militarily defeated, that they had been defeated by hunger alone. So many people started to see the terms of the armistice and the peace as a betrayal by the French government um, of national defence. And so, uh, Julia Nichols, the people of Paris, many of the people of Paris at the time, took their own, took their future into their own hands. What did they do? So, on the 18th of March, uh, 1871, the Paris Commune, I suppose, comes into being. Um, this is France's last 19th century revolution. It is an attempt at uh, self-government. Um, the Commune being what? A commune is a, is a, a form of administration in France, um, local administration. So this is the the idea is that um, these revolutionaries, radicals, have taken control of Paris, and they want to rule it uh, autonomously, um, or they want to have more say in the government of Paris. So they they take the whole of Paris. They say we are all together in this, and uh, we are going to do what. 
Well, uh, the, not, it, it's important to say that not everybody in Paris is happy about the Commune and not everybody in Paris wants the Commune to happen. Yeah, but it happened and it was strong. What was it? It's very difficult to define the Commune, actually, uh, because there are so many different groups of people who are a part of it and who even make up part of the ruling council of the Commune, which is elected um, following elections that take place about a week after it's declared. So there are some people who uh, think that the Commune should simply be a kind of federal government where Paris should be able to govern itself. Um, there are other people who are in the majority in this council who think that the Commune and Paris is really the centre of France and that Paris has the right to rule the rest of France. And so the rest of France should uh, really kind of get on board with the Commune. Um, so these things really, or these different ideas of what the government should be and how it should act really come into conflict during the Commune. Um, and I think it's been difficult for later historians and it also was difficult for people at the time to really articulate what the Commune is and what it wants to happen. But it happened, it was called the Commune and it took control of Paris. How did they do things like feed the people? Uh, well, I think that a lot of the, the privations that were in place during the siege carried on into the Commune. Um, so they, the government uh, attempted to rule Paris and it uh, passed a series of laws on things like... Uh, the government, now you're talking about the, the Commune as the government. Yes, yes. sorry, the, uh, the ruling council, mm. uh, the council of the Commune. They passed a series of laws. They actually separated church and state. Um, they passed laws on divorce and night work and so on. Um, but the actual administration, the day-to-day -day running of the city, they encountered quite a lot of problems with because nobody or really very few people who were involved in the commune, very few communards, actually had any experience of government um, or of bureaucracy running a city. So can you reset the scene for us now, uh, Robert? The, the Bismarck's one, he's gone to Versailles, he's got himself a lot of what he wanted, but behind him is this Paris has risen against uh, against him and anybody else who might want to take them on. Uh, I, I'd like you to be able to tell the listeners where are we now? Well, um, as Julia said, uh, Paris is is now this revolutionary city, and uh, it's, it is undertaking acts of revolution. Um, there's a big question, for example, about how socialist was the Paris Commune. Um, Marx, for example, said that the Paris Commune was the first real working-class government. Uh, and it's true that about uh, a third of the members of the Commune, uh, which was about, it was about 80 or 90 strong, were of working-class origin. Uh, others were doctors, lawyers, journalists, artists like Courbet, who were kind of friends of the people. Um, but I think one of the most powerful things about the Paris Commune is, is that it's these are people who are trying to make the French Revolution happen for good. The French Revolution lasted for uh, you know lasted through the through the 1790s, but then it was terminated by the First Empire. Uh, it was back again in 1848, uh, but it was terminated by the Second Empire. So these are people who see themselves as the new Dantons, the new Marats, the new Robespierres, trying to form a revolutionary society. Um, unfortunately, they're up against the, the government of national uh, defence and against Bismarck, who are opposed to this. And together, the government of national defence and Bismarck have, a, have 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 this plan to disarm Paris, and it's the, it's it's an att the first attempt to disarm Paris to take their cannon away. Uh, that is what provokes the the, the the insurrection on the 18th of March 1871, um, and their program is eventually to get into Paris and to and to crush this commune and to uh, restore order in French society, restore national unity. And to rest, and and to achieve peace, and so in a sense, all that has to be done on on the on the back of the commune. So there is this titanic struggle that's going on between the forces of revolution 
And these, and, and, and these uh, revolutionaries who actually want to continue the war and the forces of peace and order which, which are ranged against them. Thank you very much. Karine, um, what did they set out to do? It's been hinted at by Julia, but can you give us a bit more? What did the communists set out to do? We're told they weren't very good at administering stuff, but they did put in laws, they, they had ideas. What did they set out to do and how far did they achieve what they set out to do? Yeah, well, as as Julie was saying, part of the problem is that the commune was so divided, so there were differing views amongst the different factions of the left about what they actually wanted to achieve. But, yeah, I mean, certainly some of the concrete things that they did manage to achieve were, for instance, as we heard, um, separation of church and state. That was one of the things that they brought in quite early on. And, of course, that prefigured a law that was eventually to become passed in by the French Republic in 1905. And, of course, still to this day, France has separation of church and state. So that was something that they did. They also tried to um, improve the conditions for workers. So, for instance, they banned night work for bakers. They did things like introduce workshops, workers' cooperatives to help those workers who had been suffering um, and who had a few employment opportunities, particularly when the siege came to an end and the many of the men who had served in the army had been demobilised. So they they came up with a raft of measures to try and, in, and improve the conditions for workers. Although it should be said, one of the things that they didn't, or they weren't so successful at, was um, measures to improve the lives of women. Um, I mean, it's striking that although there were many female supporters of the commune, there were no women who were actually on the on the commune as part of the you know the the committee itself, and so they didn't really do anything to improve their social well a few things to improve their social conditions but didn't go very far and certainly they did nothing really to give them greater political rights certainly nothing like giving them the vote so it's quite a mixed picture um, but also what we have to bear in mind as we were just hearing is that this is all taking place in the context of the the problem that they have which is that they're facing military threats from the government which is now in Versailles can we just finish this uh, this particular area off, Julia? Um, we again alluded to that, but they did help the communards at other cities in mm-hmm. uh, in France, and also would back them up. Um, can you tell us why that didn't happen? Yes. So the the communards were very aware that. Uh, in French history, there had never really been a successful revolution that was led from Paris that didn't have the support of other parts of France. So they were very keen, as you said, to uh, get support from elsewhere. So they sent out missives to other parts of France uh, asking for them to rise in support of the commune. And a few cities did, but not really very many not as many as they would have liked. Um, And certainly not. There was very little support for it in the French countryside. Um, I think this has uh, quite a lot to do with the national elections that took place in February 1871, which returned a very large conservative uh, monarchist majority. And Parisians were very unhappy with this. They kind of derided it, um, really scorned it very forcefully and very vocally. Uh, they talked about how this was a, a rural assembly and that uh, universal suffrage was a terrible idea because people didn't really know what they were talking about. So I think in the context of that, um, we can't really be surprised that most of France didn't wasn't inclined to support the Commune. Thank you. Robert Robert Gilday, um, we have the French government now establishing itself as a government outside Paris. And then extraordinary thing happened, it seems extraordinary to me, they got, they got the French army, the Prussians released thousands and thousands of French uh, military prisoners. The French government got these military, created a new French army and attacked their own city, Paris. Uh, that's on the right lines, is it? Then Absol- what happened? Absolutely. I mean, in a, se- in a sense... You know, there are, there are two sieges of Paris. I mean, the first siege of Paris is by is by the Prussians and and other 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 German elements like Bavarians that we've heard about. But the other siege of Paris is by the government at Versailles, uh, which is so, which is as has been said, monarchist, royalist. Yeah. So after yes. uh, when the National Assembly is elected, this this very right wing National Assembly, they elect 
our friend Thiers as, as the head of the executive. So he is now basically in charge of the French government. Um, and he uh, he is organising this large army. So it's, part, it's partly made up of um, uh, elements that uh, survived the war. It's also, as you say, made up of about 60,000 prisoners of war who had been taken by the Prussians um, but are now given back to the French in order to uh, get control of Paris. There are also quite a large number of sort of territorial forces from places like Brittany, which are very anti-revolution. And uh, so there's this massive assault on Paris from the West, which starts around the 10th of, of May, 18, uh, 1871. Um, and within uh, a matter of uh, a week or so, they breach. They take the they take the, the necessary forts. They they uh, they burst into uh, uh, Paris from the southwest, and uh, the communards, you know, then set up barricades to prevent them progressing any further. But basically, the forces of Versailles coming from the south and the west, and the, and the stronghold of the commune are in the north and east of Paris, which are these very popular revolutionary popular in the sense of working class communities which are very much behind the the commune and the fighting takes place street by street and barricade by barricade and atrocities are committed on both sides prisoners that are taken by the Versailles are shot the communards also themselves uh, execute a number of people who they've taken hostage including the archbishop of paris and and, and various gendarmes and people assumed to be spies and gradually, the, the the force of Versailles advance, and there's what they call the bloody week, the Semaine Sanglante, which is the week between the twentieth, twenty first, and twenty eighth of May, eighteen seventy one, where basically huge atrocities are committed by the Versailles. Thousands of uh, of of Parisians are killed, and one of the most celebrated um, elements of this is the last stand of uh, communal fighters in the Père Lachaise Cemetery. Uh, which is this wonderful cemetery in Paris. Uh, but in the eastern part of that cemetery, uh, surviving fighters are put up against the wall uh, and shot and then tumbled into a ditch. And that famous wall of the Federés, it's called the Mur de Federés, it becomes an iconic, uh, becomes an iconic uh, uh, story of, of, of the Paris Commune. That's very vivid. And uh, can you, have we any idea, Karine, what the French felt about frightening the French? about murdering each other to the extent that we've heard. Yeah. Is there any report saying we shouldn't be doing this or this is going to clear the... What's going on in their heads? Have we any idea? Is it a useful question? There is a sense um, amongst those soldiers who were part of the Army of Versailles, part of the government's forces who were um, attempting to and successfully retook Paris, that, that this was criminality. They saw this as not even a, a sort of legitimate uprising or not even a proper revolution, but they were told and they were given the impression that this is the criminal element and therefore these needed to be crushed. And, and in a sense, that perhaps explains why there was so much uh, violence and why there were so many deaths. Where did um, this propaganda emanate from? Well, I mean, it came primarily from the government and, and Adolf Thiers, who we're hearing about in particular. You know, there are stories about him. Um, you know, he was somebody who was, uh, you know, a, a veteran politician, somebody who who was also a historian who had written about previous revolutions in, in um, France and in Paris in particular. And there was this feeling in which they wanted to deal with this once and for all. And so by sweeping through these neighbourhoods that had been involved in the uprising and involved in supported the commune you know by killing these um you know these revolutionary elements that they they thought that this might finally end this sort of cycle of revolution that paris had been involved with uh, since 1789 so you know for them this was you know they saw this as being a, a kind of necessary task um and you know one that they um you know needed to do to recapture the city not unakin to a holy war in a way Although well, it wasn't anything to do with religion, I know. But well, cleans- uh, cleansing the place. Yeah, there was certainly that 
that sort of language. Um, although, I mean, you know, say it's not this isn't about religion, but of course the Catholic Church, um, who saw their Archbishop um, killed by the communards and also 23 priests, really did come to see this as being very much uh, in those terms. And the Sacre Coeur, uh, the basilica that was built on Montmartre, becomes this sort of symbol um, after the the Paris Commune of that whole episode and and of this sense in which Paris had sinned and needed to repent for its sins for uh, you know during the commune Julia um how did they start to come to terms with this in France well the government takes a very harsh line towards the commune uh following the end of the semaine sanglante uh so you could almost say that it's a continuation of the war against the commune just by a different means. So around 40,000 people are arrested uh, following the end of that week um, and are then put on trial uh, at specially constructed war councils over the next five years. Um, 95 of those people are sentenced to death, although not all of those death sentences are actually carried out. And about 4,500 prisoners are deported to New Caledonia, which is a French penal colony in the South Pacific. Um, The revolutionaries themselves who managed to escape these things, either death or arrest and deportation, are forced into exile. Um, So they can't continue to be in France. The majority of those who go into exile either flee to London um, or to Switzerland, um, particularly to the area around Geneva, which is obviously French-speaking. Others go to Belgium or to the United States. And these revolutionaries aren't allowed to freely uh, re-enter France until a general amnesty is declared at the beginning of the 1880s. Thank you. Robert, Robert Gilday, um, what was the... If we can follow that through... So they're being executed, they're being exiled in massive numbers. We're not sure about the accuracy of numbers, but it will massive do the job. But what was the influence, was there influence on the French psyche? And there was. What was it? Well, I think that the word that comes to mind is trauma. I mean, the French have undergone uh, two massive uh, events. One is, one is defeat, you know, this defeat that was massive and also by unexpected Bismarck, yeah. by Bismarck. And which really sends France tumbling down the the sort of league table of nations, um, and they're left with that for a long time. I mean, how do, how do, how do the French recover national greatness and natural national self respect? I mean, they know that they can't take on Germany, so one of the things they start doing in the eighteen eighties is going out and finding colonies in in Africa and trying to, and they become a sort of colonial power, and they don't really get back that sense of themselves as a as a as a powerful nation until until the First World War. And the second thing is uh, they've they they've again uh, suffered this 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 revolution and bloodbath, and so um, one of their main challenges is to try to establish a constitution which establishes a kind of consensus and some sort of peace um, and order uh, going forward. And in fact, the Third Republic um, that they put together lasts for seventy years until until nineteen forty. And I think the secret of that is, well, first of all, um, the republic. Paradoxically, you've got you've got a republic without republicans. It take it takes the republicans, the moderate republicans, the best part of ten years to get into power. By the end of the eighteen seventies, the republicans are in power, running the republic. They take the view that royalists and Bonapartists need to be excluded from political life altogether. So that happens. So it is a very strong, powerful, militant republic. But they also realise they're going to have to deal with popular revolt. Um, and they established a very uh, democratic rule had actually been established by Napoleon III. The universal suffrage had been established by Napoleon III. It's a kind of paradox because he was a despot. But universal suffrage remains the key. And the French Republicans take the view that, you know, this is one way to sort to kind of marginalise socialists and radicals. And they set up a parliamentary republic, um, which is which is pretty solid, and where the upper house, the Senate, basically is controlled by people from the countryside, notables from the countryside. And so they do set up a system that basically works and does mean that revolution has more or less gone. Thank you. Karine Greenvalley, um, we've got the siege of Paris and then uh, the uh, Commune. Which stands out most vividly now? 
Well, I suppose now, I mean, it's quite interesting. Now, I would say that there is more um, awareness of the commune than perhaps the siege of Paris itself, which wasn't the case in the years that immediately followed um, the whole period uh, of the Franco-Prussian War and the commune. Um, you know, I think now because the, the commune had such much wider uh, repercussions internationally in terms of the left, of, of socialism. It reverberated more obviously than the siege of Paris, although the siege of Paris did have um, significant reverberations in terms of the military experience and in the ways that it prefigured um, some of the experiences of war that were seen in the 20th century. So it was it's something that has actually changed over time, um, you know, from this initial period in the 1870s when it, there was very much a focus on remembering the, the Franco-Prussian War rather than the Commune. Finally, Julia, uh, it seems that the longer-term legacy is the Commune. What's that? What is the legacy been? What is it? Yeah, I think we could say that the Commune almost, if we look at the event itself, almost has an outsized legacy compared to what the event is. Uh, so... In France itself, uh, the Commune acts as a, a beacon for the left, really, uh, in the decades following it. So there is an annual walk that is organised to the Père Lachaise Cemetery uh, and the wall that Robert alluded to earlier. Um, and outside Paris, outside Paris, so outside France. Outside of France, um, it gets taken... It really gets internationalised. Um, I think this is probably down to Marx um, and he says in 1871 that the commune was a glorious harbinger of a new society and so it's taken up as Corinne said by various different uh, international left movements so for instance Lenin when he died was buried in uh, or sorry was, was wrapped in a communal flag um, it's also pointed to um, in China uh, during the Cultural Revolution and the Shanghai People's Commune, which uh, happens in 1967 as a kind of model society. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Julia Nichols, uh, Robert Gilday and Karine Varley. Next week, it's the solar wind blowing from the sun to the edge of the solar system, creating the northern lights and comet tails on the way. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Right, what did we miss out? That's really important, Robert. <laughs> well, we, we were talking earlier about um, women and Karen got the, the, the women case spoken for, but I mean, uh, I, think, I think there are some wonderful women who are involved in the committee. Uh, as Karen said, they're not, they're not involved on the council and, and Julie said they're not involved in the council because, you know, politics is male. But there are plenty of wonderfully dynamic women. I mean, two of my favourites are Louise Michel, the so-called Red Virgin, who was a school teacher, very much involved in the in the club movement that leads up to the commune. A great speaker. She gets involved. She in, invades the Hotel de Ville before the commune is set up, dressed in in men's clothes. So she's there's a, there's a whole barricade in Montmartre, which is known as the the women's barricade at the Place Blanche. So she's involved in that. So I think, and she gets deported to New Caledonia and then she comes back and then when she dies and I think it's 1910 there's a huge funeral that she, that, that happens and then just another example a woman called um, Dmitriev who's a Russian woman who's, who's very close to, to Marx's daughters and she becomes involved in the, in the commune she sets up a, a union of women to support the commune and to, and to tend to prisoners and uh, interestingly enough she her name is taken up by a, a group of feminists in in 1971 french feminists so her her name sort of lives on yeah well i mean i i agree with what you said i mean certainly i think it's sometimes surprising i think because women were very much involved in the kind of street politics although they couldn't be officially part of political organizations and so on they were certainly played a leading part and you know there were also the whole kind of idea of of women revolutionaries as well is a really important image that emerges from the the commune and this this notion of the the petrolers these female fire starters who were blamed for setting paris ablaze as well as a really interesting aspect to it because of course uh, it turned out that this is all a myth and so it raises questions about why the women were blamed for these fires when it there seems to be so little evidence to support the fact you know support their their responsibility is there any notion along the way 
that those attacking the French army think we shouldn't be doing this? I mean, have we any evidence is what I'm saying? I don't think so, no. So The we, propaganda was effective. Well, we talked earlier about how um, the French army really believed that they were trying to bring the revolution to an end, finally, by um, attacking the commune. And I think that the commune also saw this as uh, a continuation of a battle that had been going on since 1789, or even they might say before 1789, that this is just one more instance of uh, the forces of order or even moderate republicanism trying to kind of suppress them and suppress the revolution and suppress the people and that it was their duty. It was an obligation to fight against those people. What do they think about this in France? What do they think about it now? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I was thinking about was that, we, you know, um, Julia talked about the kind of the positive legacy of the commune as a kind of the harbinger of a worldwide proletarian revolution. But I think there were. I think there was another legacy, which was, you know, if you're a socialist or an anarchist, do you have to be violent? And I, th- I think a lot of socialists in the in the later nineteenth century and into the twentieth century, they they try and find a way which where they can gain power, gain influence, and gain power through democratically through through party politics rather than violently. But I also think that the experience of the commune means that there is a huge militancy. There's always this fear that the the bourgeoisie will will arm and use its mercenaries to to hit them again so i think i think in in french socialism and in particularly in french communism the communist party that forms in in, in 1920 i mean there is a huge degree of militancy which I, so i think there's a kind of there's a kind of ambivalence between you know wanting to do things electorally and democratically but actually also this this kind of taste for a, a very strong militancy yeah, so uh, I was I was in Paris in December 2018, which was during the first month or so of the Gilets Jaunes protests, and I saw a lot of graffiti through the city that was calling back to the Commune. Um, you know, down with the state, long live the Paris Commune, long live 1871, that kind of those kinds of ideas. So it's interesting that it continues to be. I wouldn't say current. I don't think it's a regular kind of um, reference point in French politics anymore, but that it continues to be this symbol that's called upon. We didn't say much, if anything, about class divides, but as I read from your notes, a lot of the middle classes got out of Paris while the going was good and didn't take any part in this and settled elsewhere in France or even left, left France altogether. Um, but you mentioned uh, that, 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 that there were lawyers and, uh, and people who are part of the communard. So where are we there, really? Marx does say that you know when the proletarian revolution happens, it will need intellectuals like himself. And in a sense, we are talking about you know intellectuals. These are these are people who, from the liberal professions or um, uh, so on, who are sort of déclassé in some way, but who you know who throw in their lot with 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 the popular revolution. Because you know, as, as I said before, there is this sense that the, the French Revolution must go on and the French Revolution must succeed. But then there is the so-called bourgeoisie, the, the people who own property, who are absolutely scandalised. So they either lie low, or sometimes they try and escape from Paris by hiding under trains, or they leave when the going's good. You know there there is an absolute horror, and uh, there's a there's a colleague of I mean Flaubert for example sits it out in his estate and then comes back and comes back to Paris and says it's also you know it's smelly and look at these horrible you know look at the shadows of these horrible people who have defiled Paris. He has this friend Maxime Ducamp who writes a, a book called The Convulsions of Paris. It's about four volumes long and talking about how horrendous these people were. As Karen said, they're they're you know they're they're criminals, they're murderers, they're pillagers, they're pimps, they're all sorts of nasty things, and so I think, yeah, the 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 the, the French bourgeoisie is is hates the commune as much as the communards hate the French bourgeoisie. What damage was there to the city? It's been bombarded by Bismarck. You said over there, or not very effectively, but then this French army comes in and goes, as you, as one of you said, every street by street, uh, burning with the petroleurs, the women supposed to be somebody or other was burning anything they could aim at correctly. So, how much damage was done, and anything significant? It was it was actually really quite um, significant in terms of the buildings that were burnt down and damaged. I mean, you know, major sort of land. Landmarks, places like the Hotel de Ville, the, the town hall, Sorry, the, the Hotel, Hotel de Ville, Ville yeah. there was also the finance ministry that was completely destroyed, the Tuileries Palace, that was destroyed, that 
was seen as being particularly symbolic because it was associated with the the monarchy and with Napoleon III as well. But also elsewhere, the Champs Elysees as well suffered. The Arc de Triomphe also suffered. It took twenty three direct hits from the shells from the uh, Versailles army. So there was significant amounts of damage to Paris, and this was again one of the kind of enduring images for the opponents of the commune, saying, you know, look at what these people have done to this city and particularly for those people who saw Paris as this symbol of civilization, of enlightenment, to see the city damaged in this way was for them was really quite significant and again was an argument about against what the community had done but also against what happens when you allow the the workers and the poorer elements some element of political power you know th- this is the consequence they thought Can I just say well, I had one right of that because in 1940 when the Germans are again approaching Paris very rapidly the French army is in rout and there's a question of whether Paris should be defended. And the government and the military of the day decide that Paris will not be defended. It will be declared what they call an open city. And the Germans will simply be allowed to walk in. And I think, well, all the evidence points to the fact that some of the people who were leading France at the time, uh, controlling the armies, Marshal Pétain, Marshal Végan, were young men at the time of the Paris Commune. They had a horror of the Paris Commune, and they thought there's a, there was also a story that the communist leader, Maurice Thorez, had seized power in the Elysee Paris as the government was once again retreating to Tours and then once again retreating to Bordeaux, where the National Assembly was held in 1871. And it was that fear, I think that fear of a Paris Commune which again incited the French government and the military to, to conclude an armistice with the Germans. Well, there we are. Thank you all very much. I think the producer's coming in to relieve this scene. <laughs> Anyone want tea or coffee? Oh, yes, please. Tea, what should you prefer? Tea, please. Tea? I'm fine, thanks. I'm fine, thanks. Melvin? Tea, please. Two teas. Thank you very much. And thank you all very much. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Henry Akeley disappeared from his home on the edge of Rendlesham Forest somewhere around the end of June 2019. They come every night now. The police don't believe me in the- Please, I just need you to get in touch. What we uncovered is a mystery that has sent us deep into England's past. To an area steeped in witchcraft, the occult, secret government operations. Now we have multiple sites of five lights with a similar shape, Robert. And something that might indeed be altogether otherworldly. <laughs> this is The Whisperer in Darkness. Available now on BBC Sounds. Podcast lovers rejoice. Meet Pocket Cast, your new favorite podcast app for listening, search, and discovery. Our beautifully designed app gives you more control, makes it easier to find and organize podcasts, and offers powerful tools to customize listening. To hear all your favorite shows, download our free app at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores.